Am I on? There we go. Good morning, everyone. You can make your way back in. Find a seat, and we'll get into God's Word together. Could be the seat you were sitting in before. Could be a new seat. If we haven't met yet, my name is Brent Smith. I'm one of the other leaders here at Christ Central Church. And uh, great, great to be here with you this morning as we look at God's Word together. Uh, if you're a student that has just arrived in Fredericton or have just returned after being away uh, for the last few months, a special welcome to you. We're certainly uh, glad that you're here. And on behalf of the entire church, I just say we consider it a great privilege that you are with us and worshiping with us and serving with us. And we love having you guys woven in to our community while you're here in Fredericton. Well, it's great to be back this morning. We've been away. Uh, Karen and I and the kids have been away for uh, a while, a few weeks, 10 days or so, I guess, 11, something like that. Um, in PEI, we left right after Sam and Jess's wedding, and uh, we headed to PEI. I preached that Sunday, August 20th, at our church in Charlottetown, uh, but many of you know that because you were there. I don't know what it looked like here on the 20th, but most of the church from Fredericton was there in Charlottetown, which was great. Uh, yeah, poor Dave Slade, every time he goes to Charlottetown, I'm there preaching. He can, he can run, but he can't hide. So after I preached there in Charlottetown, uh, we were on vacation for a bit in Cavendish. Uh, the seven of us crammed into a tent trailer for a few days, and it was surprisingly good and relaxing. And uh, we were there with Ben and Jill and their kids, and uh, we had a great time together, a great way to cap off the summer, but it's good to be back. And it's September, as has been said, and we're back in Devon. It's great to smell those blue mats again. <laughs> and uh, school starts this week, and we're kind of at the point when everybody just kind of takes a deep breath and braces to go again. This is really the new year. Uh, despite what January 1st is, this is really the new year. So happy new year to everybody. So just before we jump into our text this morning, I just want to say that as we head into this uh, September, October, November, it's kind of like the last chunk of the year. I'm excited about what God is going to do. I'm excited about what God's going to do this fall as we head into kind of the last quarter of 2020. 17. And ever since we gathered together in January and we took uh, a concentrated time to pray, we've really been feeling that 2017, God's going to do some great things. And we've certainly seen that uh, in the last eight months. We've seen God do great things through our kids. We had a, an amazing time at our, at our weekend away in May. We've heard reports of healings and on and on. But what more is God going to do in 2017? What more is there yet that God wants to do through us in 2017? And so just take a moment and think, or maybe a better word would be imagine, use your God-given imagination, and think about what God could do as we close out 2017 in these last few months. Think about what God could do in your life group over the next few months, what could happen in the lives of children in our communities as God works through Kids Club when it starts later 
this month, how God could move during our Women's Weekend in October, what prayers God could answer as we gather together at our weekly tag meetings, together asking God our prayer meetings, and what ways could God impact the men in our church during our Men's Weekend in November, who is yet to be saved and added to the church this fall, Use your imagination about what God could do in the fall, in the next few months. And the bottom line is this, that as a church, we need to be filled with faith and anticipation that as we humbly rely on God and as we earnestly call on Him, God will do great things in us and through us for His glory. Greater things have yet to come. Greater things are still to be done in this city. Amen? I'm preaching before I'm preaching. <laughs> but we need to think about what God can do. We need to be filled right here as we sit at the 1st of September, filled with faith and anticipation that as we rely on God, as we call on Him, what wondrous works will He perform in us and through us? in the next few months. All right, go ahead and open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We've been in here for a few months looking at Paul's letter, Paul's second letter to the Corinthian church. And we're going to start this morning in verse 7, and we're going to continue down, finish that paragraph through to verse 12. Okay, so I'll pray. And then we'll jump in to God's Word together. So, Father, uh, we just say we're so thankful of your presence with us. We're so thankful for you and what you've done for us through Jesus. We're so thankful that you haven't left us as orphans, but you've sent your Spirit to dwell in us and amongst us as a church. And that was very evident as we worshipped you and we lift your name on high. You do inhabit the praise of your people. And so we're so thankful for all that you are for all that you've done and all that you've yet to do, even this morning. And so we just pray now as we come to your word that your spirit would work, that these wouldn't just be words on a page, but they'd be living and active in our lives, that your spirit would work through your word to bring change to our hearts, that you'd strengthen us and encourage us as a church, that you'd bring revelation, you'd bring salvation through your word. That's our prayer this morning. And so we pray that you'd give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to understand your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So, over the past few months, you and I have looked at 2 Corinthians. One of the things we've seen Paul highlight through the letter is this theme of the paradox of the cross, the paradox of the gospel. Uh, throughout the letter, Paul sets up these paradoxes not sure if that's a word, paradoxi, I don't know. <laughs> Any English majors? Patrick says, who knows, who cares? <laughs> Paul, he set up a few of these paradoxes, and we've seen them all the way through the letter. The main one being that there is power in weakness. We've seen that come up all the way through the letter. Most recently, just a few weeks ago, when we looked at 2 Corinthians 4, chapter seven, or verse 7, uh, we heard Paul say that we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not 
to us. And the main thing we drew from that was that although the world values and pursues extraordinary talents and extraordinary intellect and extraordinary power and wealth and fame, God works differently. God uses the ordinaries because then he gets the glory. And so no one is too common, no one is too weak, no one is too shy, no one is too inarticulate, no one is too disabled to do what God wants you to do with the gifts that he has given you. Our ordinariness is not a liability, it's an asset. And the weakness that we often hide behind and see as a disqualification for God using us is the very reason that he chose us in the first place. Because then as he uses us in our weakness, it's him and his surpassing power that gets the attention and not us. And so our ordinariness is not an obstacle to God using us. That was verse 7. And this morning we'll carry on from there. And beginning in verse 8, Paul is just going to unpack that more. So in, in verse 7, Paul states the purpose for his weakness to show God's power. And now in verses 8 to 12, he illustrates the way in which that purpose is fulfilled. And so let's read it together and then we'll draw a few points from it. So 2 Corinthians 4, 7 to 12. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. So as we said here in verses 8 to 12, Paul's continuing this clay jar concept he laid out in verse 7, and he does that by first showing us how that truth works out in his own life, how he's experienced that truth in his own life. He then points us to kind of the principle behind that truth, which is where we see it in Jesus' life, and then he shows what that produces in the life of the Corinthians. So he first points us to his life, then he shows us Jesus' life, and then shows us what that produces in the life of the Corinthians. And so that's kind of how we'll go through these verses. So first he gives us the illustration from his own life. So in verses 8 to eight and 9, he gives us kind of these beautiful four parallel lines that illustrate how verse 7 is played out in his own life. How his weakness invites God's strength in his life. And so these lines are kind of auto, autobiographical. There we go. <laughs> Paradoxes. <laughs> it is correct. There we go. Paul is showing us what his life as an, as an apostle consists of. And so if you've read through the whole letter, you'll know that in chapter 11, Paul lists in detail the many things he's endured in his ministry. If you flip over to 11, he says in verse 24 of chapter 11, 
He says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst and often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak? And I am not weak. He's been through a lot. He's been through a lot. And so here in chapter 4, in verses 8 and 9, he describes his life in these terms. And in doing so, he's not just showing us his life, but in a way, he's describing the life of every Christian disciple. And so he begins each pair with an illustration of human weakness, and then he follows that with an illustration of divine power and each one kind of hinges on the words but not beautiful words in the bible but not and the lines seem to grow with intensity with each one so first he says we are afflicted in every way but not crushed we are afflicted in every way but not crushed. Affliction encompasses physical, spiritual, psychological oppression. Paul is saying he was under pressure. He had many things in his life that had compressed him. Nevertheless, he was not crushed by him. When I read that, I picture like the, uh, the Indiana Jones or whatever, where they're in the labyrinth and the walls just keep coming in and in and in and sometimes life feels like that doesn't it it feels like we're just getting compressed and you get a bit claustrophobic with all the pressures that are around you he says i was afflicted in every way i was pressured in every way nevertheless i was not crushed the walls only went so far paul says that his life was marked by this, but in the midst of it, he was never crushed. He was squeezed, but he wasn't squashed. <laughs> he was afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Next, he says he was perplexed, but not driven to despair. And so what he's saying is that there were many times in his life when he was confused about why things were happening, but in the midst of that confusion, he never lost hope in God. In the midst of that confusion, he never lost hope in God. And so as Christians, we encounter many things that we're unable to give an answer to or provide an explanation. But there's a big difference between being unable to explain something and believing that there isn't an explanation. There's a big difference between going through various trials and being confused by them and not being able to give an explanation of why they're happening and a big difference between that and going through things and believing that there's no purpose. You might not understand the purpose, and you might not understand the purpose until Jesus comes back and, you're, and you know as you are known, but there's a big difference between that and believing that there's no purpose. 
to what you're going through. And Paul says, I was perplexed, but I was not driven to despair. I was confused about things, but I didn't lose hope in God. I couldn't explain the purpose, but I still believed there was a purpose. Third, Paul says he was persecuted, but not forsaken. Paul knew what it was to be persecuted by men, but he also knew what it meant that he would not be forsaken by God. On the cross, as Jesus took our sin, he cried out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And because of that, because of Jesus' work on the cross, now we can confidently say that our God will never leave us or forsake us. That promise that we have, that we can say so much, was bought with a great price. When Jesus hung on the cross and said, why have you forsaken me? And so no matter what persecution we might endure at the hands of men, God will never leave us or forsake us. We might be persecuted, but we will never be forsaken. And so as we live for Jesus, we might be abandoned by family, we might be abandoned by friends, people might turn their back on you, but God will never abandon you. Sam Storm says, man's abuse of us is no measure of God's affection. Man's abuse of us is no measure of God's affection. We can be persecuted, but praise God, we'll never be forsaken. Lastly, Paul says, he is struck down, but not destroyed. Paul was knocked down, but he wasn't knocked out. He was knocked down, but he wasn't knocked out. It brings to mind the story in Acts 14 when Paul's preaching in Lystra and the Jews get upset and they come and they stone him, like take big rocks and throw it at him, stone him, and they do it with such intensity that he's laying there and they assume that he's dead. And so naturally you want to drag the dead man out of the city, so they drag him out and they leave him outside the city to, to the wild animals or whatever. He is dead they assume that he is dead. And the next verse, it says he pops up and goes back in the city. And you're just like, what in the world? First of all, you were just stoned. You were just hit with rocks. And then you just pop up in the next verse. Second, why are you going back in the city? I don't know. That's the last place I would go after somebody threw a rock at me. You could just picture these guys there, the Jews, and Paul comes back in the city and he's all busted up and jacked up and swollen from being hit with rocks and he's like hey guys I'm back I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing if you wouldn't mind not throwing rocks at me that would be great but he says he's struck down but he's not destroyed he's struck down but he's not destroyed and so in Paul's life as a disciple of Christ he was pressured, perplexed, persecuted, and pummeled. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> All these, I didn't even go to school. I got that. 
All of these descriptions work to show us just how frail this clay jar of Paul is. His complete dependency on the great power of God. All these things, these four lines work to show us just how frail Paul's life as an apostle, as a disciple of Christ, this clay jar was. And it points us to the surpassing, abundant, exceeding greatness of the power of God in his life. It wasn't that Paul just reached down deep and sucked it up and became the man through all of these continuous daily sufferings, he remained a cracked jar that allowed the surpassing power of God to shine through. After pointing us to his own life, Paul then deepens and strengthens his point by showing us the life of Jesus. In verses 10 and 11, he shows us that this experience of power through weakness is just a continuation, in a way, of what we see in the weakness in the death of Jesus and the power in his resurrection. And so he points us to kind of the principle behind it all. Listen to what he says. He says in verse 10, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So what is Paul saying here? What does he mean by carrying around Jesus' death and his life in our bodies? And so we need to see the connection between verses 10 and 11 and what came before it. So Paul is linking the death of Jesus with the afflicted, perplexed, persecuted, and struck down of verses 8 and 9. And on the flip side, he's linking the life of Jesus with the deliverance represented by the four but-nots of the verses in 8 and 9. So what Paul is doing is showing the Corinthians that his life as an apostle isn't just about proclaiming a crucified Jesus, but that his life is also a reflection of the crucified and risen Jesus. That in order for the message to be authentic, the proclaimer must reflect the proclaimed. Paul is showing us that being a disciple of Jesus means that we live a cruciform life, a life that is shaped by the cross. He's linking his life to what we see in the life of Jesus. So what Paul is saying here is another way of saying what Jesus said in Luke 9:23, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. To be a follower of Jesus means then that there is a dying on our part as we take up our cross and follow Him. All these afflictions and confusions and persecutions that Paul 
is talking about is all a part of Paul following Jesus' command to take up his cross and following Jesus' example in dying to himself. That list we read in chapter 11, we need to be struck with the fact that Paul could have easily avoided all those things had he not followed God and went on mission with him. The things he lists aren't just like things that are general sufferings. He's not shipwrecked if he doesn't get on a ship to follow God in mission. He's not adrift at sea for two days if he doesn't take on the life of an apostle and serve God in that way. And notice Jesus says, take up your cross daily. To be a Christian means there is a daily dying. It's not a one-time event. It's continuous. And it's not something we focus much on when we ever when we give evangelistic calls. Not often do you hear, come and die to yourself. Come and die to yourself. But Jesus' words are clear. If anyone would come after me, not if the super-Christians would come after me, not if those who want a greater experience of my grace would come after me, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And so we need to be clear that discipleship always requires sacrifice. That mission always requires sacrifice. There is always a death of some sort. There is always a daily dying to be a disciple of Jesus. There is always a daily dying to go on mission with Jesus. This past week as elders, we went through a document that Kevin, uh, with Kevin that outlined a lot of the finer details of what it means to lead and church governance, etc. And there was a line in there that read, committing to local church governance will require sacrificial living. Time commitment is not just for activities outside the home and workplace, but will also affect personal time, social time, and family time. Translation, there will be death. <laughs> there will be sacrifice. To be an elder, just like to be a kids' church worker or a move teamer or a bass player, requires sacrifice. To be a disciple of Jesus requires sacrifice. It means taking up your cross daily. It means always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. It means there's always death involved. In order to share the gospel with a coworker, your comfort needs to die. In order to stand up for biblical conviction, your reputation might need to die. In order to spend time with God, maybe an extra time of sleep needs to die. To be a disciple of Jesus always requires a death of some sort. It always requires sacrifice. A thousand daily deaths. Whatever it might be, we need to understand that the Christian life is a life of dying. 
But notice what Paul says right in the middle of verse 10. There's a pretty important so that stuck in there. There's a pretty important so that stuck right in the middle of verse 10 and 11. Being a disciple of Jesus and living this cruciform life, this life shaped by the cross, this life of daily death isn't just a call to suffering and sacrifice. The call of Jesus isn't just a call to suffering and sacrifice. Paul also says, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. So that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. I feel like doing the James McDonald, everybody say, so that. There you go. So that. Right? Because you can't miss this. The life that Jesus calls us to is not just a life of sacrifice and suffering. We carry in our bodies the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. We willingly endure suffering and self-death so that the power of the gospel will will work through our lives. Christ's resurrection life actually working within us. We die to self and we experience more of His life. We are crucified with Him and we see glory with Him. We don't pick up our cross and die to ourselves because we enjoy pain and suffering. We die to ourselves because in doing so, we experience the overflowing life in Christ. So these things hang together. You can't pull them apart. We aren't just denying ourselves in our own strength. We have that resurrection power of the Spirit of the risen Christ living in us. And so we simultaneously carry the death of Jesus and the life of Jesus together. You can't miss the so that. The call To be a Christian, to be a disciple of Jesus is a call to come and die, but it's also a call to come and live in the life of Christ. Lastly, after he shows us the principle of this life as seen in Jesus, Paul shows us what this life produces. When we take up our cross daily, die to ourselves and follow Jesus, in the last verse, in verse 12, Paul shows us what the effect of that is, and it comes with a bit of a surprising twist. He says in verse 12, so death is at work in us, but life in you. So the way it's been going so far, at least when I read the paragraph, I expect Paul to say, so death is at work in us, but life is also at work in us. Right? But he comes with the, with the curveball, and he says, so death is at work in us, but life in you, in the Corinthians. Death is at work in the apostle, and life is at work in those he is serving. He throws us the curveball right at the end. But this once again points us to the beauty of the cross because as Jesus went to the cross, he died that we might live. In the same way, Paul is saying, as we live this way, as we live a life shaped by the cross, as we live this cruciform life, dying to ourselves, life is at work in those we are called to serve. 
death may be at work in us, but that death produces life in others as we live and share the gospel. And so this is amazing, and we need, we need to get this. What Paul is saying is that he endured hardship, he endured uh, persecution, he sacrificed, he lived a life of weakness, persecution, affliction, confusion, because he knew that as he lived that way, dying to himself, that God would work through him to bring life to those that he served. Paul was willing to endure death at work in him because he was passionate to see life in the Corinthians. Paul was willing to endure death at work in him because he was passionate to see life in the Corinthians. And so when I read that, I say, am I passionate to see life in those around me? Do I have the same heart as Paul where I'm willing to have death at work in me so that there can be life in those I serve? How often, I know it's true in my own life, do we want to do great things for God? We just don't want to have any sacrifice to see it happen. We want to see life in others, but we don't want to have any death at work in us to see that come to pass. Remember what Jesus said in John 12. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And so often we want to bear fruit. We just don't want to fall to the earth and die. We hold so tightly to our own desires and our own interests and our own comfort and our own safety and our own schedule of our day and our week and our own plans and our own and our own and our own. And we say, God, I'm willing to serve you in any area, in any way, as long as it doesn't cost me any of this. I want to see much fruit from my life, God, but don't ask me to fall to the ground and die. Charles Spurgeon said, I do not believe you can do much good without having a great deal taken out of yourselves. And when men are so very particular and careful about themselves and will only serve God if it does not cost them anything, I believe that no earthly good can come of that. A man whom God will greatly bless must be willing in this sense to fall into the ground and die. This past Tuesday morning, we uh, were finishing up our vacation in PEI in Cavendish, and the kids woke up quite early. And we had a young couple with, with two young kids camping in a tent about five feet from the end of our tent trailer. And so rather than try to contain our pack quietly around a picnic table at 6.30 in the morning, which would make me desire for Jesus to return, I loaded them up in a van and we drove down to Ocean View on uh, Cavendish Beach and walked around for a bit and we read some of the signs. Some were about the Marco Polo shipwreck. Um, we were staying at the Marco Polo campground, so that was neat. Uh, pretty much every other sign, though, just like everything else in Cavendish, was about Lucy Maud Montgomery, um, which is fine, but 
She's probably the most well-known person in PEI history, but God looks at things differently, and not to discredit Montgomery in any way, but I think on the new earth, all the, be- all the signs on Cavendish Beach will be about John Getty. John Getty was born in Scotland in 1815, about 60 years or so before Montgomery. Uh, but shortly after he was born, his family emigrated to Pictou, Nova Scotia, and at the age of 23, he moved to Cavendish PEI and became the pastor of the Presbyterian Church there. And he served there faithfully for six years. He got married, had kids, and then he felt called by God to missions work on the island of Vanuatu in the South Pacific Ocean, which if you know the name, it's because of Survivor Vanuatu. He brought the idea before the Board of Foreign Missions, and they thought he was not suitable for the work due to his, quote, lack of physique and lack of experience, which probably would have been a heavy blow to a, to a young man in his, in his 20s. After a while, he did manage to convince them to send him, and on November 30th, 1846, he and his family began the 20,000-mile and nearly two-year journey from PEI to Vanuatu. Shortly after arriving on the island, he narrowly escaped being burned alive due to a cultural misunderstanding of harvesting coconuts at the wrong time. (laughs) After three years on the island, John had yet to see anyone become a Christian, but wrote back to the missions board that he was encouraged because the people had stopped stealing his things and they no longer brought weapons to church. (laughs) In 1860, a measles outbreak killed over 1,000 a third of the islanders, including many of Getty's friends, teachers, and elders in the church he had planted there. He lost three of his children to death in infancy. He had assistants abandon him on the island, and near the end of his life, he contracted influenza, which left him permanently debilitated, and the following year, he suffered paralysis. For 24 years, right until his death, John Getty, along with his wife Charlotte, served the people of Vanuatu. And when he died, a tombstone was erected by the church where he had preached, and the, inscri- and the inscription on it reads, in memory of John Getty, born in Scotland, 1815, minister in Prince Edward Island, seven years, missionary sent from Nova Scotia to Vanuatu for 24 years. When he landed in 1848, there were no Christians here. When he left in 1872, there were none who were not. Unless a seed falls to the earth and dies, then it will bear much fruit. John Getty understood Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 4.12. Death was at work in him, but life in the inhabitants of Vanuatu. He could have stayed on the idyllic red sandy beaches of Cavendish, but he died to that. He died to himself, and from his life came much fruit. So I guess for us as a church, for my own life, the question I keep coming back to is are we, are you, am I willing to like Paul, like John Getty, many others, die to ourselves in order to produce much fruit? Are we willing to have death at work in us so that we can see life produced in those we serve? Paul showed us last time in 2 Corinthians 4, 7 
that our ordinariness is no obstacle to God using us, which is an amazing and liberating verse. But he also wants to remind us that our reluctance to sacrifice and suffer is an obstacle. The more we desire to be used by God, the more must be our willingness to suffer for him. And there are no easy paths on mission with God. So when we talk about and imagine great things that God could do through us as a church, are we prepared for the sacrifice that will be involved as well? When we call out to God for Him to work in great ways and pour out His Spirit and blessing and see Him do amazing things through us as we're on mission with Him, are we prepared for the sacrifice that will be involved with that as well? They're hard questions to ask. They're sobering questions to ask, but we need to know and not lose sight of the fact that Paul reminds us that as we take up our cross and follow him, as his death is at work in us, that his life is at work in us, that his resurrection power is at work in us. We have the promise of his overflowing, abundant, exceeding resurrection power working in us and we have the promise that as we follow him as we take up our cross as death is at work in us then life will be produced in those we serve so it is a high calling it is a sobering question but it needs to be coupled with the great promise that as we do that his power is at work in us and life is at work in those we serve Why don't we stand and I'll pray.